Welcome to Budo, the Way of the Warrior podcast. This podcast is a collection of historical and philosophical references, contemplations, lectures, and exchanges with David M. Valadez, his students, and guests. Podcasts are recorded on the mat at the Sension Center in Southern California and in studio. These podcasts are provided to cultivate the warrior on the way and to add light to their path. All right, this podcast is going to be a little different. This is going to be our first in-studio recording. And I'd like to read and maybe use in-studio as an opportunity to read some of the writings that I've done over the years. Today I'm going to read the writing titled Reflections on Operating and Owning an Aikido Dojo. This piece was generated by a question I received from someone who follows us on social media. He noted that our mat tends to be well populated and consisting of multiple skilled practitioners even though we are independent as far as a dojo goes. We're, we're not affiliated with the Federation and I can see from a certain point of view especially one developed from within the Federation culture our dojo can appear quite anomalous. And so he asked, how are you doing it? Uh, specifically, he asked, or he, he was curious about, why a dojo operated within a federation being ran and managed by a certificated shihan has less people on the mat than we do. So I use that question as an opportunity to put down in writing some of the lesser spoken about ideas regarding, you know, what is Aikido, what is a dojo, how do you operate it, and, and probably even more succinctly, how do you apply the way in something as materialistic as a business. Hence this piece that I'm about to read to you now. Um, I'm going to take advantage of the fact that we're doing a recording here and not just a writing and maybe stop reading at certain points where I feel questions might arise or where I feel further discussion is warranted and beneficial. So I may stop periodically. The piece is quite long and to be truthful it's not completed at this point um, but there's no way that I am going to read or you will want to listen to the entire piece all in one sitting. So at some point we'll just stop today. All right, here is the piece. So, Reflections on Operating and Owning an Aikido Dojo. The maintaining of students and the increasing of one's overall membership is an important issue for dojo, especially traditional dojo, 
as traditional dojo can find this to be a difficult task for many reasons. This difficulty is compounded by the fact that popular media outlets frequented by the masses today are not commercially assisting the traditional arts. For dojo that have relied, knowingly or unknowingly, upon such resources, these may be dark days. It has been many years since Above the Law came out, or since Tom Cruise was a samurai. So let's stop there for a second. When I was in the university in the 90s, um, truth was indeed problematized. But the problem of truth always kind of orbited around an elusive objectivity. Even when you had kind of uh, post-structuralist or postmodern criticisms being developed, uh, they actually gained their power from a given truth being exposed for its own subjectivity. Well, that power then comes from, at some point, there is some belief and some adherence to a, some sort of objectivity for truth. Things have greatly changed over the decades between then and now. And I have seen that this has come to affect much of the Aikido world today. Um, truth is no longer held to any kind of objective standards. Uh, it gains uh, more of its cultural capital and power by uh, repetition and dissemination. Um, philosophers in the past, people that have struggled with truth, have long held that proximity to any sort of objective criteria is actually something shared by relatively few. And contrary to that today, um, we inversely believe that truth is present only when the masses uh, have adopted it or when it is repeated ad infinitum. And this has caught, you know, social media is one of the areas where this truth was generated. It did exist before Facebook, um, but it always held a secondary role and it could always be countered by somebody, even one to a few people, who could uh, point out flaws in objective reasoning, um, you know, power, the truth of power and the power of truth would be on their sides, but things have changed, and social media has obviously contributed to that. Um, it's gotten to the point now where Aikido, Aikidoka, Aikido Dojo uh, almost have to participate or at least feel the need to participate in this crisis and, and in a constant crisis over what Aikido is and is not 
And by result, and as it relates to this piece here, is, well, then what is an Aikido Dojo? What should it be and what should it not be? Uh, I think the crisis that everyone feels compelled to participate in is a sign that somebody who follows the way would use to say, not this way. This is the wrong way. I think if you are at a loss of what your Aikido is and is not, um, you probably need to change directions. But today this truth is shared by the masses and is verified in repetition alone. It, and that generates this crisis is, is pointed out repeatedly everywhere, the invalidity of an art like Aikido. There's no doubt that there is plenty of room for the overall um, art to improve when you look at its practitioners, but this is true of any art, and it is just more a result of dabbling culture, and dabbling culture is the culture of the masses. So every art has this kind of continuous degeneration. It is impacted more by its popularity, and there's really no way around that uh, in, in terms of it's something you're going to have to deal with. So today, if you read social media, it is constantly talking about how uh, Aikido just sucks. Um, the part that stands out for me as an Aikido practitioner uh, is what I just mentioned, that it is dabblers talking about something and, and, and why I tie this into the criteria by which truth has changed is you no longer have to be a member of that rare group, that kind of expert group. You no longer require an expertise. You can simply join into the discursive inertia of the masses and repeat echo in a kind of echo-like fashion over and over again. Aikido sucks, Aikido sucks, Aikido sucks. And eventually you go from having Aikido practitioners who might uh, offer some counter positions to Aikido practitioners who now jump on that bandwagon. A, a good example of this is, um, um, I'm sorry, I don't remember his channel, but Rokas, his work on Aikido. And, uh, you know, it's about getting views and likes and, um, you know, capitalizing upon that discourse on the nature of Aikido, when I think if anyone looked at his practice, you would see, <clears throat> excuse me, that it is quite immature and yet to be developed. And I remember this calls me back to an interview I read from Ikeda Sensei when early, early on, and someone was asking him that question long before uh, Facebook was out and this kind of rampage uh, and attack on objectivity. And they asked him that question, you know, what is Aikido effective and uh, something akin to that. And, you know, he very clearly, he answered, 
it's not that Aikido sucks, it's that your Aikido sucks. And I think that there's so much truth in that, but we, we are in a generation where humility is just not, or increasingly not becoming part of our way of interpreting the world. So if I am martially ineffective, it must be because of the art I practice and not at all relative to how I practice my art. Obviously, Ikeda-sensei was right. So you're opening an Aikido dojo today, or you're practicing Aikido today, you're not going to gain a benefit from social media or mass media today. Um, it's just not there. You're going to have to figure something else out. And I think we at our dojo have figured that out. So back to the piece. Additionally, the traditional arts are not being assisted by current social trends regarding such apparently disparate things as notions of masculinity, concepts of self-defense, the wellness industry, the happiness industry, etc. Most of these venues have usurped the discourses and pedagogies of the traditional arts, but have done so while disparaging their sources, noting them to be wasteful and able to be dissected without issue all in the name of modern efficiency. In the face of these challenges, without a steady and increasingly growing membership, traditional dojo face financial risk, and arts such as Aikido face degeneration and possible extinction. So let me stop there and, and talk a little bit about the way or the manner in which Budo has really been taken by this mass movement. Again, for me, it all comes out of dabbler culture. And dabbler culture, as I say, is the culture of the masses. They're the virtues of commitment and discipline and tenacity and integrity, the things that allow a person to stay with something or to stay with someone when duration alone brings its kind of repelling energies such as boredom or doubt, uh, when just exposure alone brings a kind of rawness to ourselves by the mere contact of it just over and over as if someone is you know kind of rubbing the same spot on your skin over and over there is a repelling energy in in, in that case in the shape of pain but there is also a kind of spiritual rubbing that happens where most people just want to pull out they just want a break. They just want to forfeit discipline. They want an escape. They want a vacation on the beach. They want to get away from it all. They want uh, girls' night out, man's night out. They want date night away from the family. Uh, this this kind of what, what I call is, um, in general, a kind of retreating. To not retreat is a cultivated state. 
It's not something you're born with. It's not even something your parents can give you. And, uh, you know, you can compound that fact that your parents probably don't have it. And so they probably gave you the absence of these virtues if they did give you anything. So it, it is very important to realize that by default, a cultivated state implies that most people do not have it which implies that most people are going to act without commitment, are going to act without discipline, are not going to have integrity, are not going to have resiliency. And so most people are not going to be able to stay in something that requires those virtues. If you look at the martial arts in general, most people quit. In our dojo, we have two kind of member boards. It's just something that made sense to me. We have the traditional member board where after a person passes the trial period, they get their name on a tile and we put it up on the wall. And it's placed according to the Senpai Kohai dynamic in our dojo. But we have a second member board and it's made up of people who quit. Their tiles or tablets are taken from the member board and placed onto this other board. And this board is not really a board. It, it actually is uh, circumventing the dojo. We put the tiles up on the top portions of our wall and it's going to make its way around the dojo. I remember when I first started managing a school in the mid-80s, that school was ran in what, looking back now, I would call fully a commercial manner. And turnover was just insane. Insane. In talking to people who run gyms or who worked at, at fitness clubs, it's very much the same thing. The people who sign up, there are people who sign up, they don't even go. There are people who remain signed up at these clubs, at these gyms. And if they went at the beginning, they don't go anymore. And they continue to stay signed up. A lot of commercial martial arts schools have tackled this problem in the way that fitness clubs have. Well, hey, you don't use our facility, that's fine, as long as you keep your dues going. So they do things like electronic payment, you know, maybe they get another month or two, maybe they just get, depending on how busy and how unorganized the person is, maybe they just get a continuous membership fee paid with no client ever showing up. Some do first and last month, like it's almost a rent for an abode of some kind to cover the the lulls that may happen from this attrition rate. I was watching one video of a a very well-reputed Brazilian jiu-jitsu instructor, and he was giving his numbers of how many people he's trained, about how many have quit, And when you 
tallied those numbers in percentages, he had a 77% attrition rate. In, in conjunction with these other kind of commercial ploys, this is where you see um, all the efforts made by commercial schools, and I would call any school a commercial school that uses these tactics, uh, but they're all designed to keep a cash flow going, to address the fact that most people join martial arts to quit. This is where you get testing fees and gi markups, equipment markups, um, you know, different colored uniforms available for different color, different types of ranks, uh, the divisions of ranks, the stripes per per belt, um, federation fees, membership fees on top of your actual dues. Uh, you know, patches, stickers, T-shirts, all, all of this stuff is to keep that cash flow because your, your clientele, so to speak, is actually not going to come in anymore. I think, though, there's such an exposure then to just very superficial levels of martial arts by default. By default, in other words, more people do not understand any given martial art than do understand a martial art. Now you combine that fact with the new criteria for truth, right? Mass dissemination and repetition then the dabblers are now in possession of what is a martial art, what is any given martial art, what it should be and what it should not be, what it should do, what it should not do, what it is capable of doing and what it is incapable of doing. This is the time that we live in. And this is the time that uh, somebody who wants to run a traditional dojo is up against and and mainly because all of that ignorance now under the guise of truth all of that ignorance now being echoed over and over again is not only bad for business right especially if you don't want to participate in those commercial tactics but it is devastating for transmission and you're going to see that even, and I believe we are seeing it, even in the arts that are currently at the top of the social media mass ignorant approval. You're going to see it. So arts like uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu currently uh, at the top in past years. Uh, I remember it was... Taekwondo, people did that. There's ninjutsu, uh, all made popular by mass movements and uh, media acceleration. But at the same time, you had this huge, huge corruption of that art. When I was training in Kenpo, uh, Tang Sudo 
and Taekwondo already had their heyday and were already feeling the effects of this mass migration and assertion of their art. Now, I knew hardcore Taekwondo people um, that were training before that huge appeal in, in the 80s where there soon was a TKD school in every strip mall. And nobody ever looked at them and said, yeah, that's a waste of time. Uh, these people were serious athletes. Uh, both hands and feet were very damaging. Timing, ranging, uh, excellent hardcore, hardcore fighters. But by the time I was in Kenpo, in the late later 80s, uh, Taekwondo was referred to in that uh, segment of the martial arts population uh, as take one's dough. I mean, already you're seeing, wow, this art has been degenerated, corrupted, made less by the amount of people who do not practice it fully. The transmission is being thoroughly thwarted. And we're beginning to see this in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So as everybody who is trying to uh, ride the inertia of this mass truth movement, and by default, they lack the virtues to train. You're seeing the art slowly. I shouldn't say slowly. I've never seen an art degenerated so quickly. But you're seeing the art corrupted. Corrupted in the sense that uh, some of the very core principles of jiu-jitsu are just not developed. So, And, and as a result the uh, work or the performance envelope of the art starts to go down, just like you saw in Taekwondo. In, in particular, an example of that would be when somebody uh, can no longer fight somebody that has 50, 75 pounds on them. That where, when the weight categories uh, become hugely or overly impactful, this is a result that uh, things like Kimusubi and uh, Yin Space and and just the Jiu Jitsu is uh, no longer a skill that is being developed in the number of practitioners, and you're left with uh, fulcrums and levers at best or games. That's another skill not developed by the masses, by default, uh, spontaneity, what in Aikido we call takamusaiki, um, but is traditionally noted as the ri section of shuhari, where the practitioner goes from form to a deconstruction of form to a reconciliation of form and non-form. This, this process takes decades to truly master. Before that, you have fakes and feints and you have moves that you set up, but this is very low level and as a result it works only on low level people. 
So trying to trying to uh, do nevoza on somebody that has seventy five pounds on you, uh, and you do not have takamusaiki, uh, you do not know how to blend, you do not know how to use yin space. Uh, you're not spontaneous with the art. Yeah, you're not doing it. Forget about it. You're going to need the artificial greenhouse of weight categories. So what happens, though, with all these masses getting this kind of limited exposure to these ideas is these ideas tend to disseminate outside of their arenas of generation. A good example of this is the mindfulness movement that is uh, making its way into areas of law enforcement. So mindfulness, if you, you know, mindfulness training in, in Buddha culture, in Zen culture, in Buddhist culture, is a beginner meditative technique. It is a remedy that the mentor, the master, the abbot, your teacher, would give you because you have what is, in essence, a diseased mind, one so incapable of beginning training that you need some sort of remedy to help you get to a point where you could start training. So that mind is often referred to as the monkey mind. It, it is the mind that is pulled from one idea to another or one thing to another. It goes from one place to another. But in each case, once it travels, it becomes fixated on that thing until it is pulled by another thing upon which it becomes fixated. And that entire process happens outside of the practitioner's control. So with that mind, with a monkey mind, there is no training possible. So the mentor says, hey, you are too sick for the training. I need you to do this first. Here is something to focus on. I want to see you control your mind by stopping it from going to another thing upon which to be fixated upon. So you, you get these kind of mindfulness trainings. And, and people who are dabblers, as all dabblers do, uh, what Mark Ripito calls uh, the novice effect, people have a novice effect. Meaning, at the beginning, because somebody is coming from such a pathological state, beginning or remedy practices such as mindfulness training feel grand. They feel that like that is all you need. And they have an impact and an effect upon the practitioner's life. It's a real effect. It's felt and it feels worthy of their time. Now, you combine that with the tendency that most people are going to dabble and most people are going to quit. Well, now you have a pretty decent reason for why you don't need to continue training because you got sucked into the novice effect. 
So people that uh, dabbled in Zen, let's say doctors now that dabbled in Zen in the 60s, 70s, uh, and they noticed, they were told, hey, you, you know, probably it's not, not at all inconceivable because of this over-reliance upon the intellect. It's something I see in my own deshi. Um, some of them come, we, we have our school by the university, some of them are at the university, uh, but there's just a, a very general cultural movement towards prioritizing the intellect. And as a result, uh, this pathological state of mind is, is almost guaranteed when a new deshi walks in, and much of early training is about mindfulness training. You, you have to get that monkey mind under control. So these doctors in the 60s and 70s are doing this kind of dabbler stuff. You know, Zen was quite popular. It was misunderstood originally as being atheistic. Um, certain cultural paradigms were being challenged in the United States and along with them the religious paradigms. And so Zen, uh, particularly through works like by D.T. Suzuki, is portrayed as something counter to Judeo-Christian -Christ um, you know, tyrannies, so to speak. And so you had a lot of intellectuals, a lot of academics, a lot of people in college, hey, I'm going to go do that non-theistic religion. And, of course, they come in with that intellect mind. It's not at all, as I said, out of the question that probably the, their mentor, their abbot, uh, said, hey, no, slow down. Uh, your mind is way uh, out of condition. Let's do this. Of course, they end up quitting before they go further than that. And now mindfulness is presented as this end-all thing. You know, and, and now, in a way, very much like uh, Ripito's criticism of the novice effect, is you have an entire industry built up around that feeling good, that feeling the effect of mindfulness training. So in, in fitness, Ripito talks about how the personal training industry really capitalizes upon uh, making people feel their abdominals and their glutes. Um, and as long as you keep that going, then your client who will gain minimal uh, advances in strength feels satisfied nonetheless because the novice effect will show them to be uh, getting some strength gains, which happens because they're coming from such a pathological state. Think of a couch potato. And then you are continually helping them feel like, yes, I am going to get stronger and fitter because my abdominals and my glutes are constantly sore. And they'll have to that uh, the capacity to tie that into, you know, images of them in their bathing suit or their bikini. But are they physically strong? And his criticism is always no. No, it's a marketing gimmick by the personal training trainer in industry, make their glutes hurt, make their abs hurt, capitalize upon the novice effect, and you will keep your clients going and you can charge them the $700 to $1,400 a month. Well, we see the same thing in mindfulness. So uh, in mindfulness training, you have, let's say it's in law enforcement, in my field, 
and you have these cops who uh, are sleep deprived and they are carb uh, loading every night because they don't prepare their own meals and the only thing open all night is McDonald's drive through or, or what have you, then you have um, the constant uh, adrenaline dumps that's happening, the effect that has on insulin. And so everybody is in a very agitated and uh, inflamed state and they come to a training and you're going to say, okay, we're going to do some mindfulness training. And you have these people in these hyper agitated state. Hey, stop, stop, sit still and breathe. And you know what? It's going to feel wonderful. It's going to feel wonderful. But... The instructor then goes on because they didn't go on in their Zen training. They don't know what was beyond that. They're now in new territory. Okay, what do I do with that feeling? So they go on and they try to attach to it everything else. So, hey, this will help you on the job. Am I going to stop? Am I going to stop this hot call and start practicing my breathing? No, I'm not. And if you were to continue on with your Zen training, for example, using that tradition that does have a mindfulness component to it, you'd be told very early on, hey, guess what? Remember how I got your mind to stop? Yeah, that was bad. Now we need it to not stop. We need it to move. What? That was just like I started, you know, they might say. And same thing happens in Aikido, right? Hey, okay, your mind's all over the place. I want you to concentrate. Where's your foot go? What is your hand doing? What direction are you stepping? And after a while, hey, you're thinking too much about what you're doing. We're not doing that anymore. So concepts like like mindfulness, but also like warriorhood, right? Um, concepts like these virtues, discipline, uh, concepts like um, yielding. These things have been taken from Budo culture, and they are now everywhere in this dabbler culture discourse, but they are loaded with ignorance. And as a result, here you are in your traditional dojo and you are trying to impact and impart these lessons, which are part of, um, you know, transmitting the art from person to person. This, this is part of the art. This is part of the transmission. But you have an entire other realm made up of many more people Telling everyone, yeah, you don't need to train that long. You can get it in this amount of time. Right? You can, you can, do mind, you can develop mindfulness, right, in five minutes a day. Hey, all you need is five minutes a day. And this is just dabblers talking to dabblers. 
So right now you're trying to open your traditional school and this is another thing that you have to face. You have to face the fact that you're wrong, you don't know what you're talking about, and in fact uh, a whole bunch of ignorant people do and they can do whatever you're saying you can do but really can't, they can do it in a fraction of the time. So some examples uh, of this uh, also in law enforcement, which I, I have a problem with. Um, in the state of California, when you want to be an arrest and control instructor, which is in essence uh, wrongly, a just a kind of martial arts instructor. So the arrest of control uh, designated with the term archon. An archon instructor um, is uh, somebody who is able to pass on, transmit martial arts information, empty hand information to people in their agency. And your state certifies you. Well, the state certification in the state of California, which is considered to be by and large one of the most uh, educating of states regarding this law enforcement personnel. Like we are way above in terms of the number of hours of training required by in comparison to the other states in the nation. Well, to be an Archon instructor, all you need is 40 hours of training. 40 hours of training. And you get a certificate. And this is not unique to law enforcement. This whole idea of shortened routes and abbreviated paths and, and, and cert certification, this is our time. This is our time. And it is, again, what dabblers say and do and think and how they act, and all this makes sense to them. And if you want a traditional school, and you want transmission that is valid and viable, there is absolutely no way that you can participate in any of this at any degree. If you look on 40 hours, you're now a teacher. Guess how long you need to train in this martial arts in the state of California in one of the most training-heavy law enforcement states in the nation. You need to train four hours every two years in that curriculum. That's it. You tell me any endeavor where you can learn anything worth anything in four hours, in two years' time. But this is how we think. And how different is that from the seminar model? Hey, come to this seminar. You're going to train one hour. You're never going to feel the teacher's techniques. The teacher doesn't know your names. You probably can't train hard with your partners because they are probably dabblers. So they can't take the ukemi. 
Yet, what does everyone believe? Even in the traditional art of Aikido. Hey, go to seminars. Go to the seminar. To me, a seminar is a waste of my training time. You're interrupting my training. I got to stop from training to go to this event. Early on, I saw that. Early on. Because the antithesis to the dabbler culture and the dabbler truth is work. Work. When they're talking and typing and sharing and liking, you're working. Work is everything. And work is foreign to them. Back to the piece. While it may appear to a dojo cho that the traditional arts today offer low returns and exchanges in potential cultural and social capital compared to MMA and BJJ, the mistake to avoid is trying to make one's dojo and one's art more MMA or BJJ-like. Aikido Journal is wrong in this regard. This is a mistake for two very important reasons. First, it is a mistake because the above-mentioned only describes one market, a market that is already saturated, a market that is increasingly and rapidly producing lower and lower returns across the board, such as lower quality of practice, lower quality of art, lower student populations per school, all common effects of mass appeal. These are all things that Taekwondo also experienced in the 80s and the 90s like TKD, eventually experienced, we are also beginning to see an increase in school closures in this oversaturated market as many owner-operators have poorly decided to overextend themselves with second or third schools or by adopting larger facilities. So let's stop there. So uh, your traditional school, your traditional Aikido school is being bombarded by dabbler culture as fake. It's being populated by people who are more likely to quit than to stay. And maybe even within your own structure, you, you borrow and take and utilize these commercial practices made by dabblers for dabblers. I see populations dropping. It's just what they do. Dabblers quit. So dojo population is going to drop. And you're not going to be getting new members because the dabbler culture, the dabbler discourse is telling everyone, don't go there. So eventually your art and your dojo becomes populated by just people who are getting older, more out of shape, suffering the impact of the carb addiction culture we live in, maybe even self-medicating, the degenerative effects of 
insulin sensitivity, sleep deprivation, a sense of meaningless in career and in life and broken relationships, and your mat starts to be crowded hardly by four people a couple nights a week. But you can't do it. And you'll feel an impulse like I think Aikido Journal feels. Hey, you know what we need to do? If this is what everyone else is doing, we need to do what everyone else is doing. Let's get some BJJ in here. It's so ironic, right? If you know your history, so ironic. So, I remember they did a, a kind of, I think it was called bulletproofing Aikido pins. You know, Aikido Kihon Waza, for me, is not Aikido. Waza is Waza. The idea of restricting an art to its architectural curriculum, to me, is again a product of dabbler culture. This is somebody who didn't get past the shoe phase of training. They didn't get to ha. They never saw the value of deconstructing form. This is shuhari is an ancient model. Even if the characters or the words change, the idea is ancient. It is ancient. It is as old as Buddhism. The idea of needing form, transcending form, needing to transcend form, being able to transcend form is ancient. But it is not a skill for the dabblers. They're not there long enough to see neither the problem being solved or to understand the solution being proposed, yet a, let alone to be that solution. So in this seminar, Bulletproofing Pins, um, I just thought that was strange because for me, uh, the pins of Aikido are not pins. Meaning, if I wanted to pin someone on the ground, that would not be the way to do it. And that was obvious from the get-go. You do, you do the Ikkyo pin, you, you cannot control a human body uh, from one corner on the ground. Not at all. Now, you might in your dojo uh, or with your, your, your uh, training partners, you might get them to tap and they'll be screaming. But here, you're, lo you're just looking at a low pain tolerance. You're not looking at an anatomical obstruction to movement. So when you have the uh, arm corner 
the upper corner of a person's body, you do not control the other three corners. And as a result, they can ever so slightly adjust the corner you're creating, and that will move and, and deconstruct your fulcrum lever mechanism, and the pin is off. And any cop knows this right off the bat. You know the public doesn't know this because they can't figure out why it takes so many cops to get someone under control. But fights move. And when fights move, fulcrums and levers that remain static become ineffective. And beginners and dabblers, they don't have dynamic pins. They try to do static pins. And so they're ineffective. So uh, it's, it's just one of the, the, you know, a pride of modernity that we go, hey, you know, these warriors of old, they didn't know how to pin people when their life was dependent upon it. And uh, I, I'm, going to, I'm going to fix this. I never fought anyone for real. I never had to arrest anyone that's trying to kill me. And I'll, I'm going to fix this. Oh, man. Give me a break. They're not pins. They're not pins. But they're going to fix it in the seminar bulletproofing pins. Uh, and, you know, well, what did you fix it with? A kind of sports competition BJJ. No problem with Nevaza responses to it. Not at all. Nevaza, to me, is very much a part of jiu-jitsu. Aikido does jiu-jitsu. Aikido is jiu-jitsu, I mean. And Nevaza should be a part of your Aikido. You need to know it. And if you can only get Nawaza from the BJJ school down the street, hey, guess where you're going? It's all one big thing to me. Jiu-Jitsu. But does that mean then that we have the right or that it is at our benefit to ignore what tradition had us doing? Are, is it something I can just dissect out? Like I can take out mindfulness and try to make a universal? No, I don't think so. I also think it's detrimental it, to see your kihon waza as a kind of self-defense de, self response, utilizing a kind of if-then paradigm. This is also highly problematic when you're trying to get to ri, when you're trying to get to takamusuaiki, when you're trying to transcend form. There is no transcendence for if-then. If-then is a pathological state made for monkey minds by monkey minds. So they can sell it to other monkey minds. The traditional paradigm 
the traditional model for transmission is as if, not if then. And Aikido Kihon Waza is not a curriculum made up of narratives like it's some kind of romantic understanding of violence. You're not a superhero trying to win and become invincible in these little mini-engagements. They're not if-then. So, at times, they don't even follow a linear narrative. This is the beginning, middle, end. Sometimes it goes, start here, go over there, eh, might as well do this. This will help. But when you use an if-then mode of interpretation, and you have this linearity, beginning, middle, end, and you're trying to pin someone in Ikkyo, and you're like, oh, this is a terrible pin, I don't understand. And then you're going to fix it, and you're going to fix it with some sport thing. Please. And, and why? Why are you doing it? Well, this is what everyone else wants. This is what everyone else is talking about. And what are you transmitting then? Is it Aikido? Or is it just what the masses want? The masses who quit, who are ignorant, who lack discipline, who lack commitment, who don't know. Really? Obviously, that is not going to transmit the art into the future. So, you know, my, one of my, it, this might be a little hypothetical for you, so bringing it back down, you know, you have Katata Dori, again, if you see Katata Dori as an attack, then again, I think, hey, you didn't train long enough. You didn't train deep enough. Even people who will say, well, yeah, it's a wrist grab, and there would be a strike that would follow up. The guy would pull you. Nope, you are still an if-then. You're still doing self-defense salesmanship. Because I'll tell you this, if anybody got a hold on you and that's when you first start moving, guess what? You lost. If self-defense is your concern, you lost. Now, don't confuse that with uh, a, a rule-governed combative situation. You go, oh, I see guys grab each other all the time. They didn't lose. Yes, you're watching that in no weapons. No, you're right? No weapons. No multiple attackers. Because when I see people in law enforcement, when I see people get grabbed, and that's when they start moving, they're not coming back from that. But in this bulletproofing, the pins, they go from a wrist grab, that's the beginning of their narrative, 
in the middle, maybe they do Ikkyo, then the guy moves, as I said, you always can at Ikkyo, and then they end up in rear naked choke. So you pass the guy out, and woo, you win. Only thing is, in real life, the cops show up, and I get there, and you just performed, uh, met the criteria for serious bodily injury against someone who was grabbing your wrist. Yeah, but he started it. He grabbed my wrist. I, yes, yeah, yeah. So I'll charge him with the misdemeanor battery, and you have the felony battery. Get off my streets. You're not supposed to be fighting on my streets. You're both going to jail. You got the felony. Congratulations. Back to the piece. The traditional dojo needs to understand that other markets are available and that these markets should be sought out instead since doing so always makes more sense business-wise than coming late to a game that is commencing its ending. It is also a mistake because the traditional arts market viability actually rests in the quality of its practice and in the quality of its transmission. As such, the aforementioned market, through its mass appeal, leads to an accumulation of dabbler practitioners by default. And, as with all mass appeals, this market, like all markets, comes to be driven by said masses. As such, slowly, this mass market comes to prioritize meaningless and material things over things of real value. The traditional dojo cannot survive by appealing to the mass market. Instead, the traditional dojo cho should avoid this market and almost everything about this market. Rather than trying to make one's dojo less traditional, one should make it more traditional. By doing so, the traditional dojo thereby enters into another untapped but resourcefully sufficient market, one also conducive to training in budo. Do not try and jump on the MMA BJJ mass appeal bandwagon. Let the MMA BJJ mass market do its thing and you do your thing. While some portions of the MMA BJJ uh, market are able to take advantage of the lucrative crowds of young males that are indirectly addressing insecurity issues with fantasies of violence and fame, or while it seems there are lots of money to be made in, mentor, in meeting the immature and commonly held need to address ego duels, the Aikido Dojo Cho should instead seek out all people that have seen through or that want to see through the superficiality of modern society, that are seeking the wellness of spiritual maturity, that wants something as real as it is lasting." stopped attempting to cater to the segment of the population that is by its very nature only starting an art to quit that art. Instead, seek out and cater to those individuals that can develop and keep a life practice. Your market is not the average 18 to 20 year old male share of the population. Your target population is this. Those individuals that want to cultivate their spirit and their body interdependently. Those individuals that want to learn how to address reconciling their fears and self-attachment for the sake of performance enhancement across all segments of their lives.
those individuals that see the benefit of and want the benefit of having a sacred space in their lives. Those individuals that are seeking a weapon-based and sized irrelevant self-defense system. Those individuals that want a channel for self-cultivation through craft perfection. This, this segment or this section of this piece, it, it caused a lot of outcry um, because people, again, dabblers misunderstood uh, this piece as a slam on MMA and BJJ. It's not that. It's pointing out that Aikido Dojo, traditional dojo, have to hold at their center the transmission of the art. But the transmission of the art is not a problem that is easily solved by such things as just get more members. Because there's not a one-to-one relationship between getting more members and properly transmitting the art. In fact, it may be quite the opposite. Getting more members is going to lead or could lead to an improper transmission of the art. On top of that, Aikido, because of the current state of truth, because of the current opinion of mass media, social media, because of the innate nature of dabblers and the dominance of dabbler culture currently going on, Aikido cannot, like other arts, capitalize upon any benefit that might be derived from gaining more members. It's just not there. So that, that earlier mentioned BJJ instructor, he has so many members that he can suffer a 77% attrition rate commercially. An Aikido Dojo cannot not in today's climate. And more than that, proper transmission, no proper transmission can suffer a 77% attrition rate. This is, this is not a critique against mixed, mixed martial arts or BJJ. In fact, I would imagine that many of their more serious schools can already sense that they are going to have to do something very much akin to what I will end up proposing. Because I think its top-level practitioners can already see the arts degeneration as an effect of this mass, this ignorant mass, this dabbler culture, this 77% attrition rate. The, 
the distinction here that I draw or the contrast that is being drawn is not one of these arts being held in negative light. It's that they can capitalize upon something that Aikido cannot. Back to the piece. That the common commercial martial arts schools seek to tap into should have as much to do with your dojo as banking or fishing or making hamburgers. That is to say, nothing. As you likely do not follow the market pertaining to the burger war for determining your dojo's path and destiny, so should you not follow trends in the commercial martial arts market for determining your dojo's path. The two population pools are completely different, and more than that, the mass market pool does not lend itself to the market strategy needed by the traditional arts. My final point to be made here. A dojo membership strategy is primarily addressed by two means. One, a dojo membership strategy can be based on getting more new students. That would be something that is possible Right for uh, an art that can suffer 77% attrition rate and still have such a large population pool that uh, it's surviving that, at least on the surface. Right? That's one way of running a business. Or two, a dojo membership strategy can be based on keeping existing students. Naturally, there is some possibility to do both, but in actual practice, you will see that the traditional dojo should prioritize keeping existing students and allow getting more students, more new students, to happen incidentally of this prioritization. Why prioritize one efforts this way? Here's an example. It is the keeping of existing students that allows them to develop a life practice of Budo, and this in turn keeps the art thriving on the mat as a tradition. This thriving is made visible to the prospective student drawn from the aforementioned population pool, meaning when they look on the mat at your dojo, they will see highly skilled practitioners doing powerful and sophisticated movements. This in turn attracts the right people to join the dojo, while the dabbler intuitively realizes that he or she is in the wrong place for doing martial art light. In short, here are my recommendations. Be more traditional. Know your population market pool and cater to that one. Prioritize keeping students over gaining new students. Separate yourself from current commercial trends. I'm sure that every Aikido Dojo Cho already believes him or herself to be doing these things, but such is not the case. This is because most Dojo Cho are relying on a certain number of fallacies that actually keep them from being a truly traditional Dojo, that keep them from catering to the right population market pool, and that keep them from not prioritizing keeping students over getting new students and that have them following popular commercial trends. I'll cover these fallacies in the next section. We'll stop here. Thank you.
This concludes this episode of Budo the Way of the Warrior podcast. For more information, please visit sentiencenter.com. S-E-N-S-H-I-N-C-E-N-T-E-R.com. Or find us at Facebook at Sension Center and on our YouTube channel at Sension One. Thank you for listening.